Amen. You may have a seat. And as you um, grab your Bible, you want to turn on over to uh, Genesis. We will be uh, really for the fall spending some time in a few key Old Testament texts. We finished our exposition of the book of Philippians uh, last Sunday, and we will um, spend some time in the Old Testament before, uh, Lord willing, we work our way through the book of Jonah in our exposition. But I'm excited to, to turn to Genesis, and when you grab uh, Genesis, you want to flip on over to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. How many of you have read Genesis 22? Let me just see by a show of hands. How many of you have heard someone preach on Genesis chapter 22? Okay, so this is not going to be anything new to you. You know that Genesis 22 is probably the most suspenseful, heart-pounding story in the Old Testament. It's well-known, obviously, just by the show of hands to Christians. Even non-Christians are familiar with it. I think Genesis chapter 22 is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. It's the story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac upon the altar at Mount Moriah. And this testing of Abraham and the provision of Yahweh, when you think about it, can only be topped by one other story in all the Bible. And we will look at that. But in order to appreciate that story, we need to understand Genesis 22. And so let's read that together. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. Here's God's word to us. Now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. Well, I and the boy go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. Then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and put it on Isaac, his son, and took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and put him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there was a ram after it had been caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh will provide, as it is said this day, in the mount of Yahweh it will be provided. O oh, Father, would you please help us this morning to fill the weight and the beauty and the majesty of not just this text, but the God of this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week we are going to spend uh, our whole time looking at this narrative and just trying to read it with fresh eyes. And we will likely come back next week to examine a little bit more of the, the theology of the text. And so there was just way too much uh, in this particular message to cram into just one. But let's start with this. When we think about Genesis 22, again, many of you have familiarized with your, yourself with it, reading it, hearing sermons on it. Let me tell you what I think the main idea of Genesis 22 is. 
Genesis 22 teaches us that Yahweh provides and his promises stand forever. I think that's what Genesis 22 is about. Yahweh provides and his promises stand forever. And as you know, as we come to Genesis 22, the two main human characters are Abraham and his son Isaac. But the story is really about Yahweh, the creator. He's the main attraction in this story. He's the one that provides a perfect and timely sacrifice. And he does that in order to give life, in order to redeem, and in order to make our worship acceptable and pleasing to him. So this is the outline. We're going to follow just three main headings. We're going to start with the command there in verses 1 and 2, God's command. Then we'll look at Abraham's obedience in verses 3 through 10. And then we'll conclude our time looking at God's provision in verses 11 through 14. So three major headings, God's command, Abraham's obedience, God's provision. Let's begin with God's command there in verse 1. Now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And like any good Bible student, when we just kind of crash land or parachute into a text, we have to make sure we know where we are. Well, here it says, it begins with, now it happened after these things. And so we want to get that historical and redemptive framework, get our contextual bearings so we understand what's going on here. And what this is, is a signal, it's a flag waving to say, after what things? What things is chapter 22 talking about? So we're forced to examine the context and The most immediate context is what happens in the previous chapter, chapter 21. But again, we can widen the lens and look back to all of what's taken place up to this point. What we realize is that Genesis 22 is the climax of Abraham's spiritual journey. But where does the spiritual journey begin? Well, why don't we turn back to chapter 12, and we're going to fly through a couple of these chapters to see how this works Really, the beginning of Abraham's spiritual journey is there in chapter 12 and starting in verse 1. This is where God initially calls Abram, and the call is very simple. It's go. Look there at the text. Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, almost out of nowhere, God calls Abraham, a pagan, and tells him to leave everything that he knows, everything that he's familiar with, all of his family. But this command is also accompanied with the promise. And you say, well, what's the promise? It's right there in the text. He says this, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what does Abraham do upon hearing this command and this promise? He obeys. He takes his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, along with all of his possessions, everything he has, and he follows after the Lord. But look there now in verse 10. It's not long before Abram begins to doubt God's promise. Famine breaks out. So Abraham and his company, they go down to Egypt And for fear that the Egyptians would kill him on account of his wife because she was just beautiful, he lies about his relationship with her and says, this is not my wife, this is my sister. And Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's house, but the Lord rescues and protects her. And then we get to Genesis chapter 15. Abram begins to wonder when God is going to make good on his promise. It's been some time now, and he has no children And he's fearful that he will not have an heir to this promise that was made. But God comes and reaffirms this promise to Abram and tells him that an heir will come from his own body. Abraham believes the word of the Lord, and this is where we have one of the greatest verses in the Old Testament, which is found in verse 6 of chapter 15. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then look on over at chapter 16. Again, it's not long before Abram and Sarai doubt God's word, maybe growing impatient because 
She's yet to get pregnant, and so what happens? She devises this plan, her own plan, to try to fulfill God's promise. Sarai comes up with this not-so-bright idea to hand off her maidservant, Hagar, to Abram. And what do we have? The conception and birth of Abram's first son, Ishmael. And you know that this causes all kinds of conflict and tension, tension that is still going on even today. In Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name. Abram means exalted father, which is somewhat ironic that he's called exalted father. And he has no children, but now he has Ishmael. And God says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. But he's only got one son. And it's not from his own body. So God, once again, reaffirms this promise to him and tells him that he's going to bless him. He's going to make him a father of many nations. He's going to give him the land. And God seals this promise with the sign of circumcision. Genesis 18, the Lord makes Abraham a personal visit and once again affirms the promise that he and Sarah, Sarah, will bear a child in their old age. You flip on over to Genesis chapter 20, and it doesn't appear that Abraham has learned his lesson. Again, fearing this time that King Abimelech would kill him, he lies again and says that Sarah is his sister and not his wife. And once again, God comes to the rescue and saves them both. And then you get to chapter 21, and it's like, finally, finally, here it is. The child of promise is born Abraham and Sarah, they rejoice. Ishmael and his mom are sent away, and everything seems so idyllic. And we get the sense, I think Moses is writing in this way, that all is well in Abraham's life. Things are finally coming together. The dust has settled. There's calm. There's rest. There's peace in the family. All that tension with Hagar is it's hard to have two wives, Right? She's gone. Ishmael is gone. He's no longer in the tent. And this is where it seems like this is going to be a storybook ending. Abraham's got one arm around his wife, one arm around the promised baby, Isaac. And it seems like all is well. Not only that, but look at chapter 21, the very end. Moses gives a very interestingly and seemingly insignificant detail Right before we get to chapter 22, look what he says there in verse 33. It says, And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and he called the name of Yahweh the everlasting God. And when you read details like that, we just kind of glance over it, but do we need to know about this brother's, like, landscaping? Why does he include this idea of planting a tree? Well, two things I think are being communicated here. Abraham is here to stay, and we learn that. He's there for several years, and he plants a tree because this is where he's going to stay and worship. You know, when Jess and I got married back in 2002, um, the first eight years of marriage, we moved eight times. Those of you that have moved, you don't like to move. You, you want to feel settled. You want to have a home. We came up this direction in 2010. We went down to Kingsburg in 2016. We came back in 2019. And I would just love to plant a tree and stay long term. That's what you do when you stay. This is my home. I'm planting a tree. This is where I'm worshiping, and I'm not going anywhere else. That is exactly what we have at the end of chapter 21. Abraham planted his tree. He settled and now the dramatic turn of events happens at the beginning of 22. Look at it with me. Now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am. Then he said, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And when you read that, it is like ice-cold water and a stab in the back just happened to you. What in the world is God up to? What did he just say? He commands Abraham to do the unthinkable. The, the same word that's used, that imperative, go, in chapter 12, is the same imperative we see here. 
Before it was leave your family, that was difficult, but now he's saying to do something, to go and do something that makes absolutely no sense, humanly speaking. Now keep in mind that we know, because the author tells us, Moses tells us that this is a test, that God is testing Abraham, but Abraham has absolutely no idea that this is a test. He only hears the command, go and sacrifice your son. So the question is, has Abram or Abraham, has he really gotten to the point now that he believes God's word and he trusts him fully, completely? There's just three things that I want to point out as we look at this. First of all, God didn't give Abraham this test because God was unaware about the genuineness of Abraham's love and his faith and obedience. That's not why he gave it. It's not like God is up in heaven saying, does he love me? Does he love me not? Does he trust me? Does he trust me not? No, God is fully aware. He knows exactly how Abraham's going to respond. This test was not to give Abraham new information. This test was so that Abraham himself would understand what he truly loved. Abraham, do you know how much you love me? Abraham, do you truly trust me? Second, there's a big difference between a test and a temptation. And we need to have clarity with that. The word used here is nisah. Some translations, like the King James, translate it to tempt. But James tells us that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. And so what we have here is a test. God doesn't tempt, but he does test. And we need to understand that God, when he tests, it's always to confirm and to strengthen, whereas Satan's temptations are attempts to sabotage our faith. God tests to sanctify our faith. Satan's temptations attempt always, always to bring about the worst. The third thing that I think is important to note that is that this testing wasn't just for Abraham's benefit alone. Why? Because Isaac is also there and he's observing his dad and his faithfulness and his obedience. And Abraham's servants are also witnessing their master's unwavering faith. So the proving of Abraham's faith, it wasn't just for him. It wasn't just for Isaac. It wasn't just for the servants. It wasn't just for Israel. But we're reading this here in 2022, and this is for us. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2 tells us that God tests his people, and you say, why does he do that? So that we would know what's in our hearts. So that we would know what we truly treasure and whether we believe that God is truly the most precious thing in all the earth. So listen, church, God will test you. He will. He has. Maybe you're in a test right now. But listen, God doesn't test you because he's being cruel. God tests you because he cares more about your holiness and growth and Christ-likeness. Do you trust him? Do you trust that he's going to meet all your needs? Do you believe that? Not theoretically, like I can point to a Bible verse and that's what it says, but does your heart really attach itself to that? Are you anchored by that truth? So let's remember that God tests, but he tests for our good and for his glory. Now, with that said, let's look at the details of the actual test. There in verse two, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and we'll stop there. What you notice about that is the repetition and just how specific God is. That word son is repeated 10 times throughout this narrative, and the repetition is extremely intentional. It heightens not just the severity, but the emotion of the test. So I know what I'm preaching on, and I'm sitting and singing with my son Judah in front of me, and while my hands are on him, I'm thinking, this is my son, my son. My son, 10 times in the text, God draws our attention to it. But God just doesn't leave it at son. He gets very specific. I think maybe you and I would have had a very similar idea. Abraham, sacrifice your son. Okay. Where's Ishmael? Where's Ishmael? If this is something that I have to do, I'm not going to sacrifice Isaac. He's the promised son. 
He's the son of my wife, Sarah. But look at what God says. Take your son. You need more clarity? Your only one. You need more clarity? Whom you love. You need more clarity? Isaac. And with that, there's no mistaking whom Abraham, Abraham was to offer. Go up to Moriah and there offer up Isaac. So listen, the, the command is clear. But what complicates this, listen to this, what makes this uncomfortable, even as you sit and you're looking at me and I can see it in your face, the reason why this is uncomfortable is because this is Yahweh that is commanding the sacrifice of a child. And that's not what Yahweh does. All the other pagan gods, that's what they do. But God, the one true and living God? Listen, child sacrifices weren't just frowned upon by Yahweh, but he despises it. He hates it. He abhors it. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this over and over again. He forbids using children for a burnt offering. In Leviticus 18.21, he says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your Lord. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 2, you read this, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel, from the sojourners sojourning in Israel, who give any of his seeds to Molech shall surely be put to death. The most severe consequences for people who sacrificed their children. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 30, beware lest you be ensnared to follow after them. That's the other nations. After they are destroyed before you, unless you inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? That I also may do likewise. Verse 31, you shall not do thus toward Yahweh your God for every abominable act which Yahweh hates they have done for their God. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. It is clear. But if that's the case, if this is what God's word says, then why is he commanding Abraham to do this for his son. Doesn't this seem just so out of step, incompatible with the moral character of God? And I would say absolutely not. I'm going to give you an answer. You're not going to like the first one, but this is what the Bible tells us. God can do whatever he wants with his creation. Let that sink in. He could do whatever he wants with his creation. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, as the author of life, he can order Abraham to return his son to him. That's the foundation. But while that is true, we also need to understand something about the character and nature of God, how he's revealed himself to us you see, he is different than all the false gods. He is sovereign, but he is good. He is the creator, but he cares. And he alone provides a suitable sacrifice for worship. You say, well, how is Yahweh different than the false god Molech, who, who also claimed to be supernatural and have a right over life and death? Only Yahweh provides the sacrifice. All the way back in the Passover and the taking of the Levites into temple service, God's requirement to offer up the firstborn child was always, always, always about preserving life, not taking life. Even back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, if you eat this, you're going to die. They ate it, and what should have happened? They should have died. But yet God provides the covering. God always provides the substitutes in order for man to live. Every other false god demands 
relishes and delights in human death. This is why abortion is such an abomination to God. It's even worse than the Canaanite counterpart of infant sacrifice because the child is not even able to be born. So listen, historically, culturally, theologically, what the narrative is doing, it's setting Yahweh apart from all of these false gods. The false gods want death. They encourage death. They promote death. They thrive off death, not Yahweh. The only sacrifice that God requires and accepts is the one that he himself provides, which is himself. And the first two verses, if they haven't pulled you into this dramatic narrative, verse 3 will. Look there at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. I don't get it. Verse 3 begins with, so Abraham just did what he was told? Abraham waited a lifetime for the arrival of Isaac, and now he's just going to just go through with this, just like that. Even when God said that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what did Abraham do? He's pleading with God, if there's 50 righteous people, will you still destroy it? And he works the way all the way down to 10. Well, will you still destroy it? He's pleading on behalf of people he probably doesn't even know. And yet, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his own son, and there's not one objection, not one single question. And so the question, what's going on here? Well, point number two, look at Abraham's obedience. Everything about verse 3 is highlighting immediate obedience. He doesn't procrastinate. He doesn't consult with his wife. He doesn't look for a way out. He demonstrates full submission without questioning, without arguing. He doesn't even ask for an explanation. He sets his face to do what God commanded him to do. And I want you to think for a second with me, from a human perspective, how in the world could a father go through with something like this? Especially when a father's responsibility, job, is to protect and to provide. When I was young, I thought my dad was Superman. My dad was big and strong, 6'3", 260, big biceps. I used to hang on his biceps and try to do pull-ups. I love that my dad was strong. His strength was my confidence that he would protect me. That continued on even when I was in junior college. I think I may have told you this story, but I remember a big fight broke out. And I was terrified because it was a jam-packed stadium or gym. And one of my buddies who was on the team made the winning basket and he turned to the very gangster crowd, threw his hands up and said, what now? Well, they showed him what now. They all rushed off the bleachers and ran toward us. And arms are swinging and people are getting body slammed. And I'm, I'm a fairly big guy, but I'm a midget on my basketball team. All these 6'8", 6'10", guys, and they're fighting. And I'm like, I'm going to get beat up. And then I bump into something, and I think, oh, no, here it goes. And it was my dad. And my dad pulled me behind him and stood up big, and no one got close to me. That is what a dad does. He is the protector. He doesn't put the son on the altar to harm him. Imagine how difficult this must have been as Abraham is processing, God, what are you asking me to do? But he doesn't ask questions. God, you gave Isaac to me as a gift. What, you want him back? God, you made, pro you made promises to me. Are you going to take back your promises? You actually said that you were going to bless all the nations through him, and now are you changing your mind? 
wait a second, I thought you were faithful. Now are you being fickle? It's remarkable that he doesn't ask questions. And that leads us to ask our own question is, is this guy just like emotionally detached? Does he not understand what's going on here? I mean, is he some sort of like robot Abraham? No feelings, no concern. The Bible tells us that he's the father of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, he's headlined as a man of great faith. His faith is amazing, but don't for one second think that he's not agonizing over this. This was the most painful three days of his life. You think about it. How does he sleep? Is he sleeping? How does he compose himself? How does he hold back his tears? How does he not pass out in grief? You put yourself in that situation. You, just like I would, we would be emotional wrecks. Thinking about what's going to happen, playing it out in his own mind of actually taking the knife to his son. John Calvin writes about these three days. He says, God does not require him to put his son immediately to death, but he compels him to revolve this execution in his mind during three whole days that in preparing himself to sacrifice his son, he may still more severely torture all his own senses. I don't believe that Abraham was emotionally detached. This was the hardest, most terrifying and excruciating thing he ever had to do. And listen, I don't think I'm speculating here. Moses' language is telling the story in a way that clearly illustrates this high cost and how Abraham feels the weight. Calvin also says this, It was sad for him to be deprived of his only son, sadder still that his son should be torn away by a violent death, but by far the most grievous that he himself should be appointed as the executioner to slay him with his own hand. I think if Abraham was given the option, just as well as you, you would have gladly killed yourself instead of your son. But Isaac, he was the one. He had to be sacrificed. A sacrifice is gruesome. The throat slit, dismemberment, thrown into a fire, all to be consumed. And for a dad to watch his son's ashes is the most terrifying thing that anyone could imagine. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 21 and look there in verse 10. helping us to fill the weight of what he's experiencing. In 21.10, we read this. Sarah says to Abraham, Drive out this maidservant and her son. The son of this maidservant shall not be an heir with my son, with Isaac. And verse 11 says, And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. If he was heartbroken that he had to get rid of Isaac, how much more do you think he was heartbroken that he has to sacrifice Isaac? This is unthinkable. You know, Jess and I, we got married back in 2002. Um, we really wanted to have a baby. The Lord had us wait. It was nine whole years before Kyla was born. And I remember when Kyla was born here at Pachomp. It was the greatest day. So much fun. So thrilling. My daddy heart was so happy. All these tears. But we waited nine years. Abraham waited over 90. Can you feel how important Isaac is to Abraham? He's a special child. He's a miracle child. He was born to an elderly, barren woman and a man advanced in years. And that's the nice way of putting it because Paul doesn't put it so nicely in Romans. He says in Romans 4.19, and without becoming weak in the faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here he is, the promised child. God says, that's the one that you are 
to sacrifice. But God, you've been so good to me. You fulfilled all of your promises. You've protected me. You've kept me. You have a track record of faithfulness. And so now Abraham has to choose. He has to choose between two things. His son and the Lord. Does Abraham love God more than anything in the world, including that precious boy? Does he still hold first place in Abraham's heart? That's the question that this text is making us think about. Does God still hold first place in your heart this morning? At what point do you say, nope, not happening? I mean, we don't even have to get to your kids. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's social media. What are you putting on the altar? And what are you not willing to put on the altar? I find it so interesting that the people and the things that we love and enjoy the most are constantly competing for first place in our lives. Many things, beautiful things. I love my wife, but I'll tell you what, my wife is the closest thing to replacing God in my life. And so we need to be aware. We need to be on guard. Parents, children, careers. Is something threatening first place in your life? I love these words by Martin Luther. He famously said, a religion that gives nothing, that costs nothing, and that suffers nothing is worth nothing. So the question, is Abraham going to go through with this? Well, let's continue to read the narrative. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. This is a, a two-day journey from Beersheba to Moriah. We'll talk about Moriah next week, but it's a distance of about 45 to 50 miles. That's like you walking on foot from here to San Jose. And I want you to notice that nothing is said between verse 3 and 4. There's no 3.5 that tells us what's going on during this time. But I just want you to imagine with me, what's the conversation like? He's got three whole days before he has to go through with this. They're talking, maybe laughing, enjoying each other. Maybe not. Maybe it's silent. But for Isaac, this is like a camping trip. He's with his dad. He's done this before. They're cooking together. They're eating together. They're sitting around a fire in the evenings. Maybe they're even having conversation. Maybe Isaac is telling his dad, Dad, I cannot wait to make you a grandfather. God has promised to make many nations out of you, and I can't wait to find my wife and have a kid and make you a granddad. And I wonder, just I wonder if any time during these three days, Abraham said, you know what? I'm going back. I am turning around. That must have felt like a lifetime. We don't know what he was thinking. We don't know what he was feeling. What we do know is that he was submitting himself fully and faithfully and completely to God as an act of worship. And look at verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, you stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And here we get a glimpse of Abraham's unwavering trust that God would allow both of them to return. And here's why. Because he had to. He promised. And God is a promise keeper. And he's not going to go back on his promises. He's proven himself faithful over and over and over again. So even though this command is so perplexing and seems contradictory, Abraham knew God was obligated to keep his promise. And you and I, we have the luxury of the New Testament. So turn there to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. And look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. He considered, listen to this, that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. You see, here's the big difference. 
Yes, God commanded something that seems so mind-boggling, so contradictory. But the faith that Abraham exhibits is when God calls me to do something, I can be obedient because everything that God commands coincides with his glory and my good. Everything that he commands coincides with his glory and my good. So I don't know all the details of how God is going to work this out, but what I do know is God can resurrect people from the dead. He's already done it in my wife's dead womb. He already experienced the resurrection by having the child. Is God going to go back on the promise? Abraham says, absolutely not. And that right there, the exercising of that faith. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. So having this confidence, look at what Abraham did. Verse six, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And then Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, and where is the lamb for the burnt offering. And this sweet story between a father and son is magnified by the language. Dad, son, this isn't Isaac's first time. He's done this before. So it's a totally appropriate question. Dad, it looks like we got everything we need, but the most essential part is the sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice, Dad, we've got a problem here. What's Abraham's response in verse 8? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And that right there, church, is the only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac. That's it. It's significant. Because Abraham doesn't try to evade the question. He doesn't lie. He simply says, God will provide. And again, I don't think he knew all the details of how God was going to work this. But he knew that God was a promise keeper. And so they go on together. Look at verse 9. They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son and put him on the altar on top of the wood. And all the language makes us feel the weight of this. He's really going to go through with this. And I just want to remind you, because I think when we see pictures, Abraham's got the knife all high up and there's a little young child. Isaac is not a child. He's not a little boy. Moses doesn't use the word for child. He actually uses the word for a young man. And a lot of commentators believe that he may have been between 20 and 30 years old. At the very least, he's a grown teenager. And you say, well, why is that important? Because how old is Abraham? He's ancient. He's, sorry people, um, but he, he's, he's an old guy. And if Isaac wants to, what is this, Judo, Abraham, you're not sacrificing me. He could have ran away. But Isaac willingly, willingly goes to the altar. And here's the climax. Is he going to go through with this? Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. And this brings us to point three in verse 11, God's provision. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now, you've read this story probably a hundred times. I really hope that you haven't missed this part right here. The angel is no mere angel. Look at it again. The Hebrew is Malek Yahweh. And every time we encounter Malek Yahweh, it's a theophany, which means that the one who intercepted was Jesus himself. Jesus arrived at Mount Moriah to stop Abraham. And he says, Abraham, Abraham, underscoring the urgency. Do not stretch out your hand against the boy and do nothing to him. How emphatic this is. Don't 
even raise a finger against him. For now I know you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only one from me. Again, this is not new information to God. This is for Abraham. He's asked to do the unthinkable, and he goes through with it, proving his trust and confidence in God. And that's exactly what James tells us that faith is, right? Faith works. He says, are you willing to recognize, James says, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. The faith had already taken place. He believed, he trusted, he went, but he proved that faith in Genesis chapter 22. You see, faith is not merely a verbal profession. It's not an intellectual understanding. True, authentic, living faith works. Faith has feet. Literally, it works. So our confidence and our trust in God will always, always, always move us toward love and obedience. If you love me, John says, you obey my command. 14, 15. Matthew Henry writes this, the best evidence of our fearing God is our being willing to serve and honor him with that which is dearest to us. And so Abraham, the most precious, the most dear thing in his eyes is his son, but he's willing and he follows through with a demonstration of his faith by offering him up. Verse 13, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. At first, same word, he raised his eyes to where he was going to sacrifice his son, but now he raises his eyes, and what does he see? A ram. Not a lamb. A ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, offered him up as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord literally sees. He not only sees, but he sees to the provision that is necessary Listen, the weight and the glory of this narrative is not for us to simply marvel at Abraham and his faith or Isaac and his willingness to be sacrificed. There's no doubt there are countless lessons here of what it means to be faithful and obedient. It's crucial for us to understand that the Lord might test us. It's probably not going to be to this degree but nevertheless, he will test us to find out if we really do trust him. But listen, all of that is secondary to what is primary. What's primary? This passage is all about God. It's all about his greatness. It's all about his graciousness. Look there in verse 1. Yahweh has the first word. He has the last word. He's the one that does the testing. Yahweh's the one that provides. Yahweh stops Abraham from offering Isaac. Yahweh provides the ram. Yahweh is named in that place. Yahweh is the one that promises blessing. The entire story of Abraham and Isaac is highlighted by God's involvement and intervention. He's the hero that swoops down into the story and brings salvation. The entire plot line to what God would accomplish 2,000 years later couldn't be more clear. On that same exact mountain, God sent his one and only son, What, what Abraham was supposed to sacrifice but didn't, God sent his son to actually be sacrificed for your sake and mine. Genesis 22 is a precursor. It is a glimpse of God's great redemption that he gave his only son, a perfect, spotless lamb, 
was the atoning sacrifice to make us right with God. We deserve death, punishment, and hell. That's what Satan wants. But God provided us his precious son, his only son. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. The reason why Jesus is not a moral monster or a cosmic father abuser is simply this, because God gives life. Even though Jesus was offered up on the altar, even though he was crucified, and even though he was buried, Jesus didn't stay dead. God rose him from the grave victoriously, and that right there is the glory of the text. God will provide. He will provide a suitable, satisfying, substitutionary, salvation-bringing sacrifice. That's his own son. Let's pray. Father, sometimes uh, we come to the Bible and this truth is just too good for us. Thank you for allowing us to see the, the beauty and majesty of our great God. Father, we feel the weight of this, especially those of us with children, those of us who know the, the alarming nature of such a command. It seems so incomprehensible. It seems so contradictory. But we're supposed to feel that. Lord, you did what we would never dream of doing, think of doing, in sending us your own son. And Father, because of that, we are so grateful that you did not stay your hand, but the wrath of God was poured upon him so that we would have salvation and eternal life. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your willingness. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for your submission to the Father's will. Not my will be done, but yours, Father. But that's not the end of the story. Lord, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that Christ is victorious. We believe that he is reigning on high. And we believe that he's coming back again. And Father, you've entrusted your church to proclaim this message boldly, proudly, and faithfully. So may we do that with everything we have within us. We pray for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.